You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, another self-suggestion, again, which we love. Go to our website, send us an email. If you want to tell your story here in the Hazard Ground, we certainly would love to tell it. So take the time out to do that. But a couple of announcements before we get to this week's guest. Uh, don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. As I mentioned, our website, HazardGround.com, that's where our Amazon promotion is. The way you can help out veterans all across America, go to HazardGround.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and it'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, buy whatever you like for whatever reason. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground, but you have to go to HazardGround.com first, click on that Amazon button, and get it redirected to Amazon. Same from your smartphone. You can go to your web browser Put it at hazardground.com and it'll redirect it to the Amazon app. We get the same credit for whatever you guys spend. So please, you can help d- donate and help veterans all across America just by going to hazardground.com first. Don't forget about Apple reviews. We need more of them. We're trying to crack the top 100 Apple podcasts. Can't do it without your help. We keep seeing more and more of them come every week. They are helpful. Trust me. I know you don't feel like they're doing anything, but they are. Uh, and people are taking notice. So leave us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. doesn't have to be a long review. But however you get your podcasts, wherever you get Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel because you can watch all of our episodes there as well. Just go to YouTube, Hazard Ground, and uh, you will see us there. Click the subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up as well. Don't forget to download the Kill Cliff TV app. All of our episodes are also available through Kill Cliff TV and the Kill Cliff TV app. And while I'm mentioning Kill Cliff, of course, killcliff.com. Our good friends, our good partners here, Clean Energy Drinks. CBD products as well, some of the best clean energy drinks on the market. I know I use them personally. The pre-workout, the post-workout are exactly what I need for me. But trust me, they have a wide variety of selections, amazing flavors. KillCliff.com is where you can go to order your KillCliff. And again, if you're into CBD and CBD healing, KillCliff is a great clean energy drink that provides you with the CBD that you need. All right, on to this week's guest who spent nearly 25 years in uniform, on active duty, and retired from the U.S. Army as a sergeant major. Started out on active duty, and then after his active duty time, went into the New Mexico National Guard, where he ended up deploying to Afghanistan and deployed to Egypt. Also worked on the counter-drug task force within the state for the New Mexico National Guard. And now is even in the process of trying to upgrade reserve component soldiers' medals for valor uh, because of the perception that reserve component soldiers have that they're not as worthy as active duty soldiers, this is a noble cause. And I, somebody who is now in the reserve component in the Guard, certainly appreciate the efforts to recognize those from the reserves and National Guard. Here's Jason Riley joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Jason, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. Again, always good to have a fellow Guardsman on. I know there's not that many of us, but, you know, uh, we stand strong together, me and my Guard brethren. So I certainly appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Certainly appreciate you, uh, you know, spending the time with us. Um, and again, a lengthy career and one that you have told me is kind of really unique, not 
really hard to, uh, to, to emulate. You know, sometimes careers take similar paths. I mean, everybody's career is unique to a certain extent, but some people follow similar paths. I will say this much, and I know this from being in the Guard, and active duty soldiers might not know this, but counter drug for the Guard is one of like the best jobs in the Guard, but it's extremely hard to get. And those who get it, hold on to it like it's their whoopee, like it's their blankie. They <laughs> never let it go. So those jobs almost rarely ever open up. When they do, they get snatched up, and people are usually there for the better part of a 20-year career. Yes, sir. That's correct. I spent 14 years on that task force and left screaming and kicking. <laughs> so how did your military career start? You know, I went to high school here in New Mexico, up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, home of the atomic bomb, wow. and uh, graduated in 1988. I enlisted at 17 into the, you know, the delayed entry program. And I wanted to be an airborne infantryman, like a lot of fine young men. And so I shipped off to Fort Benning, did the whole 30th AG and OSIT, uh, did the whole uh, uh, airborne school and, and arrived at the 82nd Airborne shortly thereafter. And uh, you had told me that you had just actually missed the invasion of Grenada. No, Panama. Panama. Sorry, Panama. Grenada is 83. Yes. Panama, yes. Yes, that's, that's Manuel correct. Noriega. We, we, we were the unit that was in the DRF-1 in that early December period of 1989. And we were doing airfield seizure after airfield seizure. And then if you look back on the situation, things calmed down. And I think the decision to invade kind of got put on hold. So we rotated off of DRF-1, went on the DRF-9. And then that young Marine lieutenant and his wife, were he was killed. And I think she was assaulted. And that changed everything overnight. So the unit that had taken our place then got to jump in a couple of nights later. So we felt forever cheated, of course. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then so as you go throughout your career, uh, you get off active duty after about, what, seven years? No, four years. So four did years. a four-year okay, hitch, sorry. big army, right? Mm -hmm. Now, why did you get off active duty? Did you know you didn't want to do it full time for the rest of your life? You know, I thought I didn't want to. You know, I did my four years and like many young soldiers, uh, lots of complaining and you know, maybe this isn't what I expected or I could do better on the outside. So I got out, I ETSed, and it wasn't very long at all until I realized that was really my passion. That I really enjoyed serving in the military. So I enlisted in the New Mexico National Guard. Now, when you enlisted, though, you had to, did you have to reclass? Is that correct? I did. I did. At the time, you know, I was, of course, in 11 Bravo, and the state uh, didn't have 11 Bravos. They had no infantry. We were very heavy on uh, air defense, artillery, and transportation and maintenance and so on. So I was given a choice. I was given a fork in the road. The two things that interested me were either becoming a medic or becoming an intelligence analyst. And uh, in hindsight now, I wisely chose becoming an intelligence analyst. So I reclassed. Uh, I went to the active duty school at uh, Fort Huachuca. And while I was there, I ran into a fellow New Mexico guardsman who was in the task force. And I'd never heard of such a thing that the New Mexico, or the, all the National Guard programs or all the National Guard states had counter drug programs. And he turned me on to it. So the day I finished my schooling, I went, I walked into their headquarters. I ran into uh, Colonel Stout, who was a great man. And I said, hey, I would like to you know, join this task force. And because I had a top secret clearance and I had the formalized military intelligence training, he hired me on the spot. And I got to spend 14 years working on that task force. It was an amazing journey. It really was. Wow. Um, so a lot of things happen in, in those 14 years, uh, most notably, obviously nine 11. Um, but take me through the early part before we get to nine 11, your experience in counter drug and sort of what you guys were doing on a day-to-day -day basis for those who aren't necessarily aware of what counter drug does in the guard. Great. That's a great question. So 
every state and four territories, so 54 states and territories all have a program. Mm -hmm. Some of them are very, very small. And some of them are very large. And of course, the biggest ones are the ones along the southwest border, sure. which, of course, New Mexico is. We have 181 miles of border we share with Mexico. So we had a very robust program. And we did a whole host of things from drug demand reduction activities at schools to border operations, you know, border surveillance operations, vehicle inspection operations for customs and border patrol. It was a really, really, really great task force, very heavily integrated particularly with the border entities, Border Patrol and Legacy Customs. So what's a typical day like? I mean, what's a typical operation like? Is it all sort of cloak and dagger looking for bad guys? Or are there actually Border Patrol agents that you guys are working with on a routine basis to do seizures? Uh, we worked hand in hand, day in and day out, shift work with Border Patrol agents mm -hmm. and Customs agents. So we had soldiers that worked with Border Patrol doing surveillance operations on the border under their direct control. You know, obviously, we're not law enforcement. We weren't allowed to perform law enforcement duties. So we did a lot of surveillance-style operations, be it remote LPOP operations. Um, we then evolved into bringing military technology in, like FLIRs. Right? A lot of FLIR to Mexico border is particularly remote, even though the whole border is, is pretty remote. This is a particularly remote spot. Then we moved into working with customs at the ports of entry, and Border Patrol at the Border Patrol checkpoints, which are generally about 20 miles away from the border. And where we found an expertise is inspecting and dismantling vehicles, because most of the narcotic smuggling is happening through the ports of entry, and it's inside of compartments and vehicles. And these are very sophisticated operations on the Mexican side. I mean, they built compartments in quarter panels and tires in gas tanks, and Border Patrol and Customs just didn't have the expertise or really the interest because they have to do so many other things. So we honed in on this deal about inspecting and detecting narcotics and then dismantling the compartments. And that became our bread and butter for many, many years. And they loved us for it. So what's the most creative compartment you've seen made to hide drugs? Yeah, that's, <laughs> there's so many, I don't give know. Give me a if couple of two you. or three, just naming, you know, some, some of the more interesting ones. So, so the ones that were most common, and probably not as sexy, were, were metal tire compartments around a tire. So they would actually take a tire off the, the, the wheel off, and they would build metal compartments all around it and then put the tire on over top of it. So the car would literally be running on hundreds of pounds of you know, mostly marijuana, but sometimes meth, sometimes cocaine. Gas tanks were huge. Uh, one time I saw a gas tank that was completely full of dope, and they had rigged the vehicle so that the only gas was from the windshield wiper reservoir. <laughs> because the entire gas tank itself was full of dope. You're not going to so, get very far on that, though. When you run yeah. out of gas, like, you know, aren't you a sitting That's duck? It. That's it. You just have to cross the border. The big thing was getting across the border. Then when they get across the border, they could reshuffle the narcotics, put it in different types of vehicles uh, if necessary. And they'd yeah. send the drivers and those vehicles back to Mexico and do it again. So it was a game of cat and mouse. You know, they would develop a technique that worked. We would figure it out. They would change the, the, the TTPs. We we're always one step behind them, if you can imagine. But it was it was great because the guardsmen were, by the way, they were just amazing soldiers. And they got to be super close with Customs and Border Patrol. We played on their softball leagues. We went to their picnics. We, you know, went bowling with them at night. I mean, these guys got to be super, super integrated with a supported entity. Now, we didn't carry firearms. You know, I mean, obviously the agents were there to protect us. There were several shootouts at ports of entry 
while our guys were there, they would, you know, run for cover. It was a wild time. I mean, that was a really wild time smuggling. Everybody who is listening and watching this now is going to get in their car and look around yeah. and go, where could I hide drugs if I theoretically was going to hide them? Because that's what I'm going to do. Now. I, I did that for a decade. I would literally drive down the road looking at drivers and looking at cars, thinking, I wonder if there's dope in there. Because, you know, they had certain TTPs that they were always falling back on. But they were clever. They're very fast. They might give you a load that was like a sacrificial load. And then, you know, at a checkpoint or POE, everyone would focus on dismantling and detecting that load. And then they might run three or four right behind you when everybody's kind of, you know, taken up. It was a very sophisticated game of cat and mouse, but we did really, really good work. And this is pre-war. So a lot of these young men, they had no combat experience and they were, you know, gentlemen, a lot of them first generation, second generation Mexican men, uh, and they were the hardest workers you've ever seen. They busted their asses. And for that, law enforcement loved them. It really was a great relationship. Wow. That's uh yeah, it's not like that here in Georgia. Um there's not a yeah. there's not a you know, counter drug uh, they're all important as you mentioned, but it's just it's different when you're in a border state, it it takes on a whole different realm. You know, I, I think for I was in the Maryland National Guard. Counter drug worked a lot in the inner city, right? Like that's where they're yes. you know, depending if there's a metropolis or whatever or an urban yeah. area where drugs are more prevalent, you know, their focus is there, but yours is a whole different world when you're sitting on the Mexico border. Yeah. And and we also did, my program had about 160 soldiers. So it was large. So we did do drug demand reduction operations where we would go into cities and teach at schools and do things of that nature. And we also did marijuana eradication operations, which is another interesting component that involved a lot of soldier skills. We go in with BLM agents, forest service agents, and help set up surveillance operations on like large illegal outdoor grow operations. And then again, they would make the arrests. We did not have arrest authority. Right. Uh, those operations, we would be armed for self-defense, but barring an exigent circumstance, we were not to get involved in, you know, the actual arrests. Okay. So you were in the guard from 93 to 2013. And uh, you know, obviously the first seven years of that are, fairly consistent and static when 9-11 happens, where are you and, and what happened shortly thereafter for you as a guardsman? You know, on 9-11, we were having our annual conference was supposed to start that morning. Mm-hmm. So we were very spread out throughout the state of New Mexico. So that very, very morning of September 11th, all of our soldiers were converging on uh, Albuquerque for our annual conference when it, when the plane struck. So immediately, you know, we, this is pre cell phone era, right? It wasn't very prevalent. So we had to get in touch with all of our guys, send them back down to the border because the border became a national security issue at that point. And in fact, I think we shut down the border for two or three days. There was literally no traffic, which was, I think, unprecedented. I don't think we'd ever shut down the Mexican border completely before. So that changed things on the counter drug side because I my full time job was counter drug. But I still had a weekend National Guard obligation. I still had to go to drill once a month. And that job was a separate job than my counter-drug job. So now we're working counter-drug operations on the border with the national security implications and whatever units we were in are now in various stages of, you know, possibly getting ready to deploy. So you kind of have a dual a dual thing going on during that early period. But it also led you to a different part of your career uh, where you actually became sort of a, a pre-deployment instructor, right? I did, I did. What, what had happened was by about 97. Now, what, what rank were you at this time, by the way? I was an E8. Okay. So you made time about I was, an E8 by, by time 9-11 yeah. rolled around? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was an E8. I, I was an E8 for, I think, 10 years. I was an E8 oh, wow. for a very, very long time. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I was only an E9 for the last two and a half, three years of my career, but I made E8. I was lucky. I made E8 very quick. So at that point, I had kind of ascended to the senior enlisted guy of the counter-drug task force, and I was the director of operations. Now, I love to train. Personally, I'm a shooter. I love to shoot. I love to train. And I understand that that's what soldiers want to do. Young men join the military to do exciting stuff. So even if they're in a transportation unit or a maintenance unit, units that are critical to the national defense, they still want to you know, shoot guns and blow things up. So as part of my time on counter-drug, I was able to send my key soldiers to schools like Thunder Ranch, shooting schools like Thunder Ranch, Gunsight, uh, Griffin Group. Uh, we, we went airborne school, air assault school. The state was very generous with us because we only hired the best NCOs and soldiers. So when they had slots to go to a school, almost inevitably they, they call down and say, hey, do you have guys that are, you know, physically fit and ready to go? So away they went. So we had a lot of great training expertise and a lot a high training standard on the task force. When the war broke out, and especially I remember after the disaster at Nazaria, when the maintenance company uh, was shot to pieces and, and, and those uh, girls were captured and killed, it really was a wake-up call to a lot of the maintenance and, and supply and support units where they realized they just didn't have the basic soldier skills to get in these kinds of fights. So I had an adjutant general who I cannot speak highly enough. His name was Kenny Montoya, Brigadier General and then Major General Kenny Montoya. And he very quickly recognized that like most guards, our National Guard just wasn't ready to be tossed into a a close-in fight. You know, the whole idea, well, I just drive a truck or I just do maintenance, you know, that that didn't fly anymore in the current combat environment. So he started drafting myself and some of my key NCOs to do pre, pre-deployment training, if you will. And so it started off kind of hodgepodge where we'd bring them in and just teach them, you know, basic weapons handling, more advanced weapons handling, a lot of live fire shooting, some combatives. I got all my guys, you know, combatives level one, two, three, and even some guys level four trained. So we started doing things like that. And then it evolved to the point where he said, I want you to leave your weekend job, which I can't even recall what I was doing at the weekends at that point, and do this as your IDT job, your one week in a month. And then eventually that transformed into doing it full-time, seven days a week. So it was an exciting period. We were running hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers through this type of training. And I think it was, it was beneficial. I mean, they were, they were not, most of them were not combat armed soldiers, but they were being exposed to stuff that I think was very helpful prior to deploying. How much uh, for you of, that whole deal was more about, you know, um, leadership and, and training guys as it was, you know, your experiences through counter drug allowed you to sort of have a better idea of how to prepare for higher intensity things on a routine basis, I guess. Because, again, counter drug is in combat. Like you said, you guys did not have um, you did not have a- any weapons with you, but there is a sense of alertness every day. To counter drug and, and a heightened sense of tension every day that's there um, that that regular guardsmen would not ever ever see. That is one hundred percent true. We were doing real world missions every day for that entire period of counter drug from ninety three when I joined to September eleventh. We were doing real world missions, you know, out in the world, and we were armed. You know, especially if you did border surveillance operations, you were armed for self defense. If you did marijuana eradication operations, you were armed for self defense. So we were carrying weapons. We were carrying live ammo back when that was verboten in most units. 
and so I think it did make us much better prepared, particularly that core. I surrounded myself like any smart man with the very best NCOs I could find. And I had men like uh, Jerry Garcia and Donnie Mosley and Manny Bustillos. They were truly amazing NCOs. And I got them to as much big army and civilian style training as I could. And it paid in spades over and over again because they became NCOICs of the different training sections that we were running to train New Mexico guardsmen going on deployments. And eventually other states started sending their personnel to New Mexico and running their units through our training. So it wasn't the end all be all. I don't want to overinflate the importance of it, but I think it was, it was good quality training. And then when they got to their pre-mob sites, they were slightly better prepared for that training. Well, Every again, little bit helps. And, and to that point, a lot of active duty will know this. A, a lot of states had a program like that. I know Maryland had one. I know Georgia yeah. has one. There, there's, yeah, whether you call it the, you know, the, the PTAT pre-deployment training assistance team yes. or, you know, whatever yes. acronym you want to come up with for whatever your state yes. was, you know, as you had combined arms training company. Um, but there always was a group of, of soldiers on the ground who yes. did your pre-train up prior to going to your MOB station train up, which again, yes. seems redundant, but that's what the army's all about, right? Like we, we, we do things multiple times over and over again until we get it right to the point where it's annoying. But that said, it's why we're good at what we do and why when training kicks in, it kicks in usually in a beneficial way. Uh, but every state wanted to do this because no... No adjutant general wanted their state to go to a MOB site and be evaluated yes. by active duty folks to be told, hey, guess what? They're not going because they're not ready. You know, that yes. was that was their that, that, that gets uh, three and four stars at NGB really ticked off. Uh, and, and it's not a good look for anybody within your entire state if that happened. So that said, it was super important for leadership at state level to make sure that their units were trained up prior to getting to the MOB station uh, for their train up and certification where they're the active unit would sign off and say, yes, they are ready to go down range kind of deal. So, um, and again, a lot of active duty might not know that because it's just, that pre train up is just normal course of doing business for them. Not the case for the guard. So, uh, yeah. and in reality for us, you know, you, you, you could argue it made our deployments actually longer. Because way longer, way longer. Active duty yes. had back in it's not a year anymore now, but it was one year BOG boots on ground, uh, and that started from the date you got in country to the date you left. But you got to remember, you know, we spent in state, you know, an AT period, probably an extended AT period of three weeks training at the state level to go to a MOB station for anywhere between 30, 45 to even ninety days before you got on the plane to start your boots on ground. Yep. So what was 15, 16 months for us was only a year for them. Now, again, granted, they're in the field for months leading up to it. They might not stay at home every night. So, you know, I'm not saying one is better than the other. They're just different ways to sort of skin the cat and get from point A to point B. But our for, for us, it's, again, leaving your civilian job and everything. You're sort of out of the picture a little bit longer in the guard format than you are in active duty. And, and also take a take a a soldier in the New Mexico National Guard, you know, he joins the guard uh, 10 years before, right? He goes to his training. He's a, he's a truck driver. He's a teacher full-time, let's say. So he goes to one drill per month and he goes to two weeks of annual training per year. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, now you're going to war. Then all of a and sudden it was one week and a month, my ass. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. It could be more certainly. But I mean, a guy whose full life isn't the military, a guy who has a full career doing something else. And it can be scary for them to say, hey, you're going to war and you watch the news and there's IEDs going off all day, every day. And people, guardsmen and reservists are being killed and maimed. You know, they were really serious. These young, these young 
guardsmen who weren't full-timers, they were soaking up this information the very best they could. They wanted to be as good as they could before they went overseas. Yeah, uh, and I can remember succinctly, uh, and we'll get to this when you get downrange as well, but th- there, there is a stigma about reservists and guardsmen from the active duty. They're not as 100%. good as we are. They're not as sharp as we are. Um, they're lazy. Uh, all those things are, are, are out there. Um, unfortunately, there is a truth to some of that because, you know, some guard soldiers are lazy. But I think there are some lazy soldiers in active duty, too. I think that's just soldiers in general. Um, the difference is the ability to sort of whip them in shape on active duty is different than it is in the National Guard. It's a much longer process. So uh, it was important for me as a leader in the Guard when I took my universities to make sure that we weren't the people being perceived as ones who drag ass, right? Like it was, it was right. important to me to make sure that they understood the expectations were high and that this yeah. wasn't the time to look to cut a corner. This wasn't the time to, to be like, oh, I'll get to it tomorrow. No, you'll get to it now. Yeah. Um, because this is, we're playing a different game right now, you know? Yeah. And, and if you look at it, but look at a platoon of soldiers in the 82nd airborne, right? They're 18 to 22 years old, mm-hmm. right? They're incredibly young. They're incredibly fit. Then you look at a national card unit mm-hmm. and those guys might be late twenties, thirties. <laughs> right. So they don't, they're not, they may not look as sharp and they may not be as physically fit, but they bring a tremendous amount of things to the battlefield. Sure. Their experience as a police officer, or a, a corrections officer or a teacher. I mean, they brought things to the battlefield that an 18 and 19 year old can. I, I think both of them are incredibly valuable. I always talk about it. My, my driver, um, during my first tour in Iraq, he was a chemical, he was a specialist. He was a chemical MOS. Uh-huh. Uh, but on the side, in the civilian world, he ran his own IT company. And yep. when we got to Iraq, he literally set up our own internet network. He Isn't that set amazing? Up his own network. Uh, and we never, you know, we had our own internet, not even related to the government or anything else. He was able to set it up on his own, ordered the parts, got him in, and created his own network for the yep. entire house that we stayed in. Yeah. Show me an 18 year old E1 in the big army. He can do that. No. It's probably pretty far and few between. Probably not going to happen. Uh, might yeah. be able to beat you at PlayStation, but not much else after that. <laughs> and run faster than you, probably. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that, that also, <laughs> I'll give him that tip, tip of the cap, right? Uh, I'm a little bit older yeah. now. I don't have the legs that I used to. But you end up deploying downrange to Afghanistan. What year was this? So I went downrange in 2007. And what had happened around 2006, okay. I was basically blasted out of counter drug by my adjutant general because he said, I need you off a counter drug and I need you running the cat C mission full time because what had happened was uh, George Bush had started bringing in additional national guard uh, units to the border to reinforce the existing counter drug guys. So we started getting large rotations of guardsmen from, let's see, we had Arkansas, we had, we had a host of States that would come and they would reinforce our operations, our border security operations. But one of the deals was they would all pass through the cat C training regime, which was, we had like advanced marksmanship. We had combatives. We had some survival training. We had mount training. We had like vehicular, you know, convoy operations, and we used you know simunitions. We we had a really big budget. The general was extremely uh, generous with uh, uh, letting us get whatever we needed to conduct training. So we did that 2006, 2007. Of course, I'd been wanting to go down range the whole time, and the general kept saying, "Wait, wait, wait." You know, I'm an E8. It's hard to find a slot as an E8. And I really wanted to go to Afghanistan. I grew up in the 70s, you know, in the 80s with uh, the Mujahideen. And and I was very intrigued with the notion of Afghanistan. So sure enough, a combat advisor mission, an ETT, an embedded training team slash combat advisor mission came up. And he said uh, probably mid-summer 2007, 
He said, I've got the mission for you and you can take your guys that you want to take with you. He said, I'll let you pick all the enlisted people. I've got an officer in mind. He'll pick the officers. And that's how it went down. So when you get this chance to go down range, given all your experience on active duty, uh, all your experience in counter drug and all your experience in train up, what's kind of like your mindset heading into this thing? You know, I felt far more prepared than most. Mm-hmm. I too had done Thunder Ranch and Gunsight and Griffin Group and a whole host of really advanced training uh, courses that many, you know, many soldiers just don't have. The opportunity. You got to go to Griffin. Yeah, I went oh, to Griffin twice. I would, I would have loved I went to, to Griffin have gone. twice. So, a previous guest of ours, a good friend of mine, Mike Denny, you can go back. He was uh, episode two fifty six, I think it was. Anyway, uh, he was a Green Beret. He and I deployed together in Iraq and. Um, he went to Griffin Group. It was the most interesting course. That and Sears School were the two schools that I, yeah. I would always wish I had gone to. Griffin Group was so incredibly intense. I, I explain it to people, and I think they think I'm lying. You know, the cars were blowing up. We were ramming cars, yep. hitting cars, setting cars on fire. The aggressive and, driving course. I'm so into that, man. Like, I drive like that normal. That's like yeah, every day fun. on the road with me. <laughs> <laughs> it was all about fighting from and around your vehicle. And it was intense. And I want to tell a story real quick. Sure. And I don't want this to be in any way despairing at all to the to the the Green Berets. We were there. I was there at one of my iterations with my soldiers. And I, I took some really great NCOs. And these guys were gunfighters. My guys could shoot. They'd gone to the Bortac course. I mean, they were really good shooters. So part of the last part of the Griffin Group course was live fire. We had Glock 21s, mm-hmm. 45. And we were live fire shooting into the vehicles and shooting out of the vehicles, which is very intense. And there was a small group of special forces guys here. And they were, they were great guys, you know, great Americans. And they were a little standoffish with us because we're National Guard. So right off the bat, you know, I get it. They're big army uh, Green Berets and we're National Guardsmen. And we were getting, we started doing the shooting drills, the live fire shooting drills. And my guys were amazing. I mean, even the Griffin Group instructors were like, man, you guys can shoot. And I remember the Green Beret captain came over to me and he says, uh, first of all, he says, who, who are you guys? I said, hey, we're New Mexico National Guardsmen. And he said, can you give my guys a little bit of a refresher, you know, on the Glocks? And, you know, because they didn't do that all the time. And I said, for sure. So I had peeled off a couple of my NCOs and they went over there and they ran through a bunch of dry fire drills and a bunch of, uh, you know, presenting the firearm, the whole thing. It's not like they didn't know what they were doing. They just... The captain was so impressed with these NCOs. He asked if he could, you know, if our guys could brush up his guys. And we did it gladly. And that, from that point on, we were best of buds. You know, at that point on, they, they loved us. And it really, I remember that so clearly because I was so proud of my soldiers. I was so proud of these NCOs, how good they were. They were so competent that, you know, you had big army soft elements, you know, I thought very uh, wisely saying, hey, can we tap into this for a few minutes? And we said, sure. It just kind of indicates to me how good these guys were. They were really top-notch NCOs. Many of them, just incredible NCOs. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, so I didn't mean to derail you on Griffin Group, but I got excited. It's, it's, no, it's, it's an amazing stuff. course. It's, it's worth a, it. Yeah, everything I've heard about it is fantastic. Plus, you get tased, which is awesome, too. Yes, you do get tased, and that sucks. Tasing <laughs> is no good. And I'm the only person, apparently, in America that would rather be pepper sprayed than tased. Because uh, everybody else said, oh, I'd rather be tased than pepper sprayed. And I, to me... I can, I can remember feeling my vertebrae clacking, you know, as, as I was being electrocuted, I could feel my vertebrae just clacking together and it was an incredibly painful experience. So I was the only guy in the group who said, I'd rather be pepper sprayed, which uh, is also not a pleasant experience. I was going to say, I'll take your word for it. Uh, nonetheless. <laughs> All right. So back to, um, back to Afghanistan. 
um, you know, you're, you're bringing all this wealth of training and everything with you. Yeah. Uh, when you yeah. when you get there, or at least before you get there, what are you told about your mission and what are you supposed to be doing? Where you're going? So, so we're combat advisors, mm-hmm. and they sent us to. They basically set up a combat advisor school at Fort Riley, and so we were technically under the Big Red One, like we were the Big Red One patch, mm-hmm. which is you know the ETTs, the combat advisors or ETTs. Uh, I think is another um, chapter of the wars that probably needs more attention. Now, Will Swenson, uh, the Medal of Honor winner, you know, he was an ETT guy when he won the Medal of Honor, which I was really glad to see. But in a lot of ways, we were a bastardized units because National Guard entities would uh, gather up. They weren't unit deployments. They would gather up people because they generally wanted E6s, E7s, O3s, and O4s to go on these missions. So it was a real interesting mix of people. Now, we had a good group. We went there. And I think we went through about three months of what they called their combat advisor school, where they taught us language, culture, uh, the latest TTPs for IEDs and, and direct action drills and things of that nature. So we got some decent training. Uh, the thing that sticks in my head, and I, I kept telling myself this throughout the course of my deployment, is one of the instructors said, look, you're not going to win the game. He said, you're not going to score a touchdown and win the Super Bowl. He said, try and get the ball five or 10 yards down the field. And that was something that came back in my mind repeatedly during the course of my year there, because, you know, you go into that with thoughts that we're going to go over there and kick ass and win the war. And he also said for the ANA, for you, it's a sprint at a year, but for the Afghan national army, this is a marathon because they live there. And a lot of these guys are in the military for, for the duration. And that was really sound advice, you know, and that way, yeah. when you work with the ANA kind of put things in perspective, you're thinking, well, why aren't they motivated? enough? Well, I'm going home in six or seven months. They're staying here. Right. So they have a much different picture of things than we do. Yeah. And uh, you hear that and, you know, you, you think when you hear that downrange, you're like, oh, well, that's disconcerting. But guess what? I'm going to do things different, right? Like that's how we all are. Yes. I don't care what he says. We'll figure out a way to get this thing done because that's our mentality and that's how we train. Um, And and when you say it, it's just like it's it's so counter to how we operate, right? Like we are are never told on any training exercise, hey, just get it another 10% and you're good. Yeah. Right. We go all the way. The, the finish line. This is what our mission is. We're going to accomplish the mission. No one has ever been given operations order with the mission being X and going, just get it to like, you know, yeah. V plus three. Don't even get all the way to X. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think that's another thing that, you know, a lot of the ETT missions, the combat advisor missions were filled with guards. And mm-hmm. we were older. You know, we were I was 38 years old on this mission. Right. So we were older and wiser and more mature. And I think that really, really helped in dealing with, because a lot of the ANA company commanders were in their forties, right? They've been company commanders for five or 10 years. They, they don't move up like we do. So there, I think that mission in particular was really well served by reserve component people. So we got into country uh, right at the end of 2007. And we were, my team was really disappointed because of course we wanted to go to the hottest place in the country. And we got assigned to Arsic North, which they were calling the quiet North. So we were all, of course, disappointed because we're like, we don't want to go to the quiet north. We want to go to the the raucous east or the radical south. But that's the mission we got. But it it didn't turn out to be the quiet north. I mean, that 2007, 2008, 2009 is when the north really started to blow up. So we we had front row seats to the surge and the insurgency during that period of time. And it made it difficult for us. And that's some of the things I want to talk about later on is how that perception that the north was quiet 
impacted our deployment and how some of these soldiers were treated after. Well, you don't have to wait because uh, we're here. Uh, so, you know, you get, right. on, you get on ground. Um, when you first get there, do you get a sense that the quiet north is a misnomer or do you feel you can feel that immediately that things are, are I, opposite of what you're being told? There, You know, the, the north at that point, because I got there December 2007, January 2008, and there wasn't the fighting season, right? As you, right. The north gets socked in heavily with snow. Mm. And I do remember we replaced the team of Louisiana guardsmen and they'd had a very rough tour. They'd had three of them in KIA and they'd had several WIA. So they, uh, it was very uh, eye-opening. They were really shook up. Um, They were clearly hurting tremendously because now they're getting ready to go home and they're not bringing three guys with them. So that was a real wake-up call to see the effects of of that many losses. They had a catastrophic IED that killed three three guardsmen and a, a interpreter. So they were still kind of carrying the effects of that. But we had an OIC at a level above us who wanted us to go out immediately and to a village called Tesnala, which is a village that played a huge role in my year there. And I remember one of the outgoing ETT guys said, listen, if you go out now in all this snow and mud, he said, you're going to get ambushed and you're going to roll a Humvee. I remember those words so clearly. And sure enough, we literally rolled a Humvee and we got ambushed on that first mission. Wow. I came back and I told that guy, wow, how did you know that? And he's like, it's very obvious what was going to happen. So we roll out on our very first mission. We go to do kind of a, you know, like a Shura and a little bit of a humanitarian aid drop. And the village was very tense, a very remote village tucked into the Hindu Kush. And uh, when it was over, one of the elders came up and said, they're going to hit you on the way out. Now, this is our first mission. I mean, this is my team's very, very first mission. In country, and I was on the gun, and we're driving out. It's snowing. It's uh, getting to be dusk, and I can see men running on the ridge line parallel to us, like clear as day. And I called it out, and the OIC said, "You know, do they have weapons?" And he said, "They don't." I mean, I could see clearly they didn't have weapons. But you know, what we learned later is they leave the weapons prepositioned in the fighting positions that they're going to fight from. So I could see them running across the ridge line, but I, I didn't engage them at that point. And then seconds later. You know, they began firing on the convoy. We stopped. And that's where I got to learn the term death blossom, which is where everybody in the convoy, when you're with the ANA, fires everything they have on cyclic rate uh, in a death blossom outside of the perimeter. So you don't want to leave the perimeter because you'll likely be struck by friendly fire. So huge, huge tick, most of it outgoing, probably 80 percent outgoing, maybe 20 percent incoming. But it was a it was a good introduction to, you know, what was going to be like that year. Now, you had mentioned um, that on that, uh, you know, mission where you had the rollover and everything else, you had uh, you had some some guardsmen there who had some who did some pretty heroic things. I did. So so I was at a fob called Maimana, which is a very tiny postage stamp fob. It was like 20 men. And, and a point I wanted to make about that fob, and I think it's very indicative of that era, was there were probably 20 Americans on this fob. And we had... Uh, we had Navy, we had active duty Navy, we had active duty Air Force, we had some active duty Army, we had a lot of National Guardsmen, and we had uh, some res- reservists there. So we're kind of at that period in 2008, where I don't want to say they were scraping the barrel, but basically what they were doing is they were telling all the services, you need to ante up, right? Well, so if you're in part the Navy, of that concurrently, too, is that there was a surge in Iraq going on at the time. Yes. So yes. There, the, the, Afghanistan was almost forgotten about, but still it was very necessary 
uh, yes. that people stay there and do the mission. So, yes, when you say scraping the bottom of the barrel, remember, in the surge, we got up to about 130, maybe 140,000 yeah. troops in Iraq at one time, which, oh, by the way, for anybody who's never been there, was insanely way too many people. Like, just nuts. Sure. When they were at, like, 100,000, I would remember walking into compounds watching first sergeants play freaking ping pong. I'm like, yeah, we don't need to have this many people here. Clearly, if you've got time for <laughs> ping pong, there's nothing else going on here. So, But different discussion for a different day. I digress. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. the point was, as to what you were saying, is that they needed to get onesies and twosies, however they could get them yes. from any component that they could get them to go do certain missions because, well, you know, everybody else was decisively engaged somewhere else. Exactly. So I would talk to these Air Force and uh, Navy NCOs and I'd be like, you know, basically, what, what's your story? And they're like, well, I got like 10 or 12 years in and I was told I'm going on this deployment or you're getting out of the Navy or you're getting out of the Air Force. And, you know, they had a little bit of training, but not a lot. And we, we made a point not to take them off the fob, right? I mean, they, they were communications people, there were some maintenance people, and there were some cooks. So they, they stayed on the fob, and that's where they belonged, and, and they were perfectly happy to be there. We did have an active-duty Navy corpsman, though, who, of course, he was our medical support. He, he traveled with us whenever we traveled out. So, so I'm on this fob for maybe the next two or three months, and it's winter. I mean, it's deep, deep winter. So very little activity for the first three months. Uh, and then the team I was with, the New Mexicans, rotated out of that fob back to Camp Spam, the bigger fob. And because I was an E-8 and this inbound New York National Guard team didn't have a senior NCO, they rotated in on me at Maimana. My team went back to Camp Span. Um, and so now I'm with a new group of guys. I'm with these New York Guard uh, gentlemen, which was a real educational experience. Let me tell you, that was, uh, yeah, I learned, I learned as a New Mexican, I learned, uh, uh, what it's like to be in close proximity to true New Yorkers. Yeah. Uh, it was, it we're was shocking. We're a special folk. Uh, very special. It was, it was Captain Joe Minning and, uh, Staff Sergeant John Herbst at the time. And I remember going on our first operations and they are screaming and cursing at each other. And insulting each other the mm -hmm. whole time. And I'm sitting there quietly thinking, boy, these guys absolutely hate each other. Nope. It's just and how they I quickly realized that's just how they communicate. That's how they talk. They loved each other to death. And yep. it, it didn't take long before I was part of that tiny yeah. little team. So so here's the three of us with a Terp assigned to an Afghan National Army infantry battalion. And what they did, we did, right? So they went on operations, we went on operations. And we did our best to mentor their their company commanders, their battalion commanders, and their senior NCOs. And I will say this, the ANA got a lot of criticism following the collapse of Afghanistan, and I never saw anything but tremendous bravery from these men. I mean, tremendous bravery. When there was gunfire, they were moving towards it all the time, and faster than we could, because they were wearing, you know, three magazines on their AK, their AK, and a helmet, that's it. And we're behind them with, you know, 80 pounds of gear, lumbering along as quickly as we possibly can. So, yeah, I think it's, you, you can find guys like that, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, who are these yes. pockets of people who act like American soldiers. They have the passion of American soldiers. They have yes. the patriotism of yes. American soldiers. The problem is, is that you don't have 350,000 of them like we do in the American active duty. Sure. You got sure. like 3,500 out of a country of, you know, 30 million people. And there's just not enough yeah. of them to want to emulate that. And the other ones are motivated by completely different things that have nothing to do with patriotism. Yeah, a lot of machismo there, right? A lot of machismo where they're always out trying to outdo each other with bravery, mm -hmm. which, hey, in a combat scenario, that can be a good thing, right? Afterwards, they'd say, hey, did you see me? Did you see what I did? I'd be like, I saw you. 
You know, so they, they were good troops. Did you we take a, a really picture? Should I, should I take a picture? Yeah. <laughs> I do have quite a few pictures. Yeah. Wow. So they, they always ask for pictures. They needed they needed undeniable proof to walk around and show everybody. Hey, look, I got a picture of it. I got a picture. Oh yeah, yeah. So. They lo- yeah they did like pictures. You know, I actually saw my first smartphone in Afghanistan in 2008. Oh, really? They, those guys had smartphones and we still had flip phones, which I thought was really interesting. I was still playing Snake on my Nokia. So you know, <laughs> those were the good old days. Uh, uh, but anyway, sorry, so, go back to what you're saying. So we're, we're conducting operations. We do mm-hmm. a lot of HA operations, humanitarian assistance, where we go to remote villages. We bring rice and beans and, and uh, oil and uh, cooking oil and such. And, and we visit, you know, with the local uh, villagers trying to get a feel for what's going on. And I, and I remember, again, going back to my free training, I remember one of the instructors saying, you know, you're not going to have much luck chasing the Taliban. But they said, if you're doing well, they're going to find you which I also thought was an incredibly prescient statement. So the more effective you are being, the more interested they are in disrupting your operations, which turned out to be very, very true. So we were roaming around to the west of Faryab province, which is Badgis province, which turned out to be a very, very, very volatile and violent place. And eventually it got a lot of American troops there. But when we were there, there were no main force elements, no main force American units within hundreds of miles of us. Literally, we were out there by ourselves. Now, there was a Nor- Norwegian uh, PRT. Um, I can't remember what that stands for, but it basically was like a hub where the Norwegians had control of that area. And they had a, a whole host of units there. They had a company of Telemark infantry and they had the uh, Norwegian Special Forces, which is, I think they were called Coastal Rangers. Mm-hmm. And those guys were amazing men. They were, they were so big that they would fill a doorway. Uh, with their frame. A lot of them were 6'5", six, 6'8", six, just, just exactly what you'd expect from like a Norwegian Viking. And they were very aggressive and they really liked us and they wanted to work with us because, you know, we had the, the combat power there with the ANA. So we did a lot of operations with the Norwegian soft elements and the Latvians. The Latvians had a small detachment of soft attached to the Norwegians. So we did various operations. We had various contacts here and there. But it kind of leads up to um, April 28th of 2008, when we had linked up with the Norwegian soft elements out in the field, and they had said, hey, we want to go back to Tesnawa because we have uh, intelligence that a couple nights ago, there was a big Taliban shura there, and we have an informant in the village, and we want to go into the village and see if we can talk to the informant and see what happened. And we'd like your combat power. So we were like, sure. So we had a, a police mentorship team, which was, you know, American soldiers, and a, an embedded training team, which which was myself and John and Joe, along with some Afghan National Army and police. And so we roll into the village. And the village was very long and very narrow. I mean, very narrow. In fact, I was told Tesnawa means the sewer, which would make a lot of sense. And yeah. so we roll, we roll through the village. We push through the entire village. And we set up like a blocking position on the south side of the village, which is facing the Hindu Kush. So it's a phenomenal position. And myself and Major Mike Akey, who's now Fulberg Colonel Akey, and just retired as the Tacoma Police Department Chief of Police a couple of days ago, great American, and the, the lead um, Norwegian soft soldier, Stein, moved down to the Shura Hall, and the village was empty. I mean, it's just like one of those old Westerns, right? There's like nobody moving anywhere, which is very unusual. We go to the Shura Hall, there's nobody there, nobody comes out to meet us, and while we're there, we hear gunfire shut. And as always, it's light gunfire, which starts getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And then it becomes an absolute crescendo. So what had happened was the intel was good, 
but the dates were wrong. The meeting with the Taliban leadership had happened the night before, not a couple nights before. So when we rolled into the village, the Taliban, local Taliban, were still there. They were, they were just outside, just south of the village, camped out in the hills. So the fire became very intense very quickly. I recently talked to Mike Aiki to kind of refresh some of my memory. And he said, I stopped counting inbound RPGs at 30. So <laughs> it was an absolute cacophony of machine gun fire and RPGs and even mortars. And I'd never been under direct mortar fire before. I mean, they were literally walking the mortars right on top of us. So it was a very intense firefight in the southern end of the village. Um, at this point, uh, Minning, Captain Joe Minning, we would rotate positions. You know, one of us would drive, one of us would gun, one of us would TC. That particular day, Captain Minning just happened to be on the gun. Sergeant Herbst uh, happened to be a driver and I happened to be the TC. So I had a lot of flexibility. And that's basically how we stayed for the entire day. Because once the whole battle started, there was no, there wasn't a whole lot of moving around, uh, switching positions, if you will. So I remember clearly I ran up to Captain Minning. He was in ETT-31, which is our um, Humvee. And he was laying down, you know, hundreds and hundreds of rounds of 240. And uh, I will never forget, I saw four Talibs break cover and start running from my left to my right, which is the first time I'd ever seen an enemy combatant so close. I could see the weapons they were carrying and the clothes they were wearing. And before that registered in my brain, Minning had, had gunned them all down, just knocked them over like bowling pins. And, you know, I'm an E8, but I'm, I'm not a battle-hardened you know, combat soldier that uh, and a lot of these soft element guys who've gone on 25 deployments, they've seen so much more. And that was a wake-up call to see those soldiers tumble dead right in front of me and to see Minning react so fast that just as it's registering in my brain, he's already knocked them to the ground, was kind of an indicator of what was going to happen that day. And Minning and Herbs had both had multiple combat deployments before. So they were very, very experienced soldiers and they were great, great men. I can't speak of them highly enough. And that touched off the battle. And that lasted about six or seven hours. We had a raging and you know battle both in the village and during our egress out of the village that lasted somewhere between six and seven hours. Uh, wow. And it was very intense, very, very intense with countless tens of thousands of rounds fired. So that was a seminal moment uh, on my deployment for sure. Um, so there were also some guys there who did some – you know, heroic things you talked about, uh, both yes. Sergeant John Herbst and Captain Joe Minning, um, yes. distinguished themselves. And this is a, a cause that you're still fighting for today at this point. That's correct. Okay. That's that's why I, I reached out to you. I heard your New York accent and uh, made me think <laughs> of them. And I've been working for 12 years to get their Valor Awards upgraded. So during the course of that very long and exhausting battle, many, many things happened. But Key among them was we, there was a hill just off to our west that the Taliban had a fixed position in, and they were raking our, they were raking our positions with machine gun fire. And, you know, you, you, you train and you read and you, and, you, and you think about these things in your mind. But very quickly what happens, we came up with a plan that we were going to, to basically storm that hill and push those guys off. Now, we didn't have medevac. We didn't have close air support because we were the quiet north. You know, a lot of units travel and they have, you know, all these plans. They have like close air support, you know, planned into their, their missions. We, we didn't have any of that. The closest ground reinforcement was two and a half hours away. So we knew we were on our own. So Minning moved the Humvee uh, into a position where he could lay down a support by fire position with his 240, 
which I think he fired six, seven, 8,000 rounds that day alone. Wow. So he moved. Yeah, it was the Humvee was literally, you know, mid calf deep and shell casings, literally. So he, we, we moved the Humvee so he could fire directly onto the crest of the hill. And then myself and Herps grabbed an ANA squad and we, you know, using an interpreter, we did our best to come up with a plan to, to assault the hill. The ANA squad leader then dropped a PKM gunner off as a second support by fire position. So now we had two machine guns firing into the top of the hill. And the ANA got in front of us online, and Herp, Herpst and I were behind them. And we FM 7-8 infantry assaulted up the hill. And again, it's like nothing I've ever thought I would experience, a broad daylight uh, assault up a hill. And as we were going up the hill. Yeah, all the things that, by the way, are tactically not in your favor. Daylight and downhill to yes, up, not uphill to yes. down. <laughs> but Manning was pouring, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of rounds. They actually had a, a fixed position on the top. They had a trench. They were fighting from the trench. Wow. So as we went up the hill, um, and the ANA again was on a string in front of us. I saw one ANA soldier go down with the best strike. Turned out, you know, it did hit his plate and sappy plate stopped it. And then just as we got to the crest of the hill, I saw another ANA soldier get shot and actually pitch into the ditch. And as we got to the ditch, the Taliban broke and ran down the backside of the hill. Like they literally forced them out of their position and they decided to flee down the backside of the hill. Hmm. Which which ended up, you know, being a terminal move on their part. They should have stayed in the they should have stayed in the foxhole because once they broke cover, uh, it was all over. So from there, we're able to t- kind of gain some level of fire superiority. Uh, the Norwegian soft elements fought their way up to the hilltop. They brought up a sniper with a fifty cal, and then they also brought a uh, uh, attack P, a Norwegian attack P. So we started to get some air support. They started dropping some few thousand pounders. So this battle from the hilltop in the village went on for two or three hours. Mm-hmm. And then eventually we decided we, we have to get out of the village. There's really no, there's no point in holding the village any longer because the, the amount of fire coming at us was increasing. You know, we always kind of, when you engage them, the fire would dissipate and they would go away eventually. But in this case, there was actually more and more people coming to the fight. And, and I'll tell you how we know that happens. Later on, we spoke to a Taliban commander about three or four months later who was in charge of that fight that day. Yeah, it was a another shocking moment in my Afghan tour. So we decided to pull back down. It's not often you get to talk to the bad guy's boss after, you, after you're shooting at them. That's yeah, a, and he tells that's, you that's that he saw you. a little bit uncommon. You. Yeah, yeah. He was saying, like, I saw you because I'm tall. I'm six foot four. So, I mean, during this course of this conversation, he's pointing at me saying, I remember seeing you. You know, because of course I towered over the, the ANA soldiers that I was I was with. So that's a that's a different part of the story. So we fought our way back down to the vehicles and we started moving back through the village. And again, it's a very narrow village. And the ANA are in open pickup trucks. So every time they come under fire, they bail out because you know they're sitting there like uh, open targets. So they bail out of the vehicle. We all have to bail out of the vehicle and we just kind of crept. Probably took an hour to fight our way out of the village. And at one point, they were throwing hand grenades over the walls uh, and they were exploding amongst the vehicles. So it was very, very close contact. The Norwegian soft elements and the Latvian soft elements were also in soft skin vehicles. So they also had to bail out of the vehicles. So really you had minimal numbers of people. Luckily we were at up armored companies, but minimal amounts of people were in their vehicles. Most people were fighting just kind of tree to tree and house to house as we pushed out of the village. So that probably took another hour to an hour and a half to get out of the village. And finally we kind of busted out to the end of the village and did a, um, took accountability. 
made sure that, you know, we got the wounded guys were starting to get treated. We had all of our people and we thought, okay, we're out of the village. And we start pushing our way back towards the ring road, which is still another three or four hours away. And it turned out that they had set up ambushes along the entire length of the road out. So it was a, it was a shooting gallery the entire way out uh, until we finally busted onto the ring road. And at that point we had aircraft with no bombs doing, uh, you know, hilltop level, just passes, just trying to run the, the Taliban trying off. To scare the out of them. Yeah. Yeah. They were swarming us in motorcycles. You could see them everywhere in motorcycles swarming around. It was, it was a very exciting and interesting day. So well, I don't know if oh, exciting is the word I'd use, but sure. I'll take your word for it. It was, it was certainly the highlight of my military career. I mean, to be in a yeah. six or seven hour gun battle and, things worked, you know, men, men were incredibly brave. They did phenomenal things. Um, I, I'm just barely touching on, there were so many brave things that happened during that day. Uh, and then, as I said, we faced another two, three hours of driving out and constantly having to stop and engage the enemy because again, the A and A are in light skinned vehicles. They can't drive through an ambush. They just get shot to pieces. So you'd have to dismount every single time, engage them with the heaviest weapons you have, push them back. And then take off again. So it was, it was, you know, six or seven hours of very intense combat that uh, we survived. We, we very gleefully survived and we're very, very thrilled. Uh, I got the experience, the, that thrill that you only get when you, you, you face certain death. Yeah. Hey, so, I, I didn't there. crap my pants. So, you know, there's a small win right there. You know, that's so funny. Uh, there are a couple of comical moments during this battle that, uh, that popped into my head when I was thinking about talking to you. And one was at one point we were going to the village. The RPGs were literally just streaking over the tops of the vehicles everywhere. And uh, somebody came on the radio and asked, where were they coming from? And one of the soldiers yelled over the radio, over there, and which became, you know, that became our battle cry afterwards. Over there, over where? Right. We're all in Humvees, you know, driving out of the village and someone yells, they're coming from over there. And another one was once we finally got out of the last ambush, we were out in the middle of nowhere. It was flat ground all around. We parked all the vehicles and uh, you saw probably six or eight guys move 10, 15 feet from the vehicles and take battleships in the wide open. Everyone just goes out there. who had been holding their, the, their urge the entire course of the day. And with no shame, there's all these men for as far as you can see, just out there in the no cover, no dignity, just doing their business. So that became yeah. the battleship. Yeah, so. I, I, similar. Uh, we we got mortared a lot. Obviously, where our compound was during my first deployment, and I'll never forget. One morning, you know, it landed so close to our house, it literally shook me out of bed. Like it, it was, <laughs> it literally shook me out of bed, and it yeah. shook me out of bed. And I jumped up and I screamed to everybody, "What was that?" And then I went, "Up, oh, sorry, my bad, my bad." Uh, is everybody okay? Is what I meant to say because we all knew it was <laughs> like the big explosion next to your house. Oh my god! Uh, you know, it was it was a gas leak. No, they they fired a rocket at us and it landed thirty yards from our damn house. So uh, yeah, what was yeah. that? Was right up there. I was like, ooh, that was the wrong question to ask. Everybody knows what that was. <laughs> you anyway. know, you, you hear about things, but until you see them and experience them, you have to go through that personal journey of like, oh my gosh, that was a mortar round that just landed. Yeah. That was just a rocket, or I see an enemy combatant maneuvering towards me it every time you see something new even though you know it's coming there's still a little bit of a moment of discovery where you're like holy mackerel this is really happening so that was a very intense day and as i said there are many men who did phenomenally heroic things way more than i, I outlined there and we had a i'm not going to throw any dirt by name because i don't think that's appropriate but we had an arsic north commander 
at that time who was the most toxic leader I've ever seen before or since. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. Anybody who served during that time will be screaming his name right now at the, at the radio or the, or the phone. And he was running his Arsic with the notion that it was the quiet North and he wanted it to be the quiet North. Well, this was a major engagement involving, you know, we ended up calling in German medevac. We ended up having, uh, I think it was an American B-1 bomber drop bombs for us. I mean, it turned out to be the biggest thing that happened in the North in a very long time. Um, he came down to our tiny little farm and he brought us into our, our dining facility, which is the size of a tiny you know, family dining room. And he said, okay, guys, you did a really good job, but let's not talk about this. And I remember thinking, let's not talk about this. That's all we're talking about. I mean, that was the most exciting thing any of us had ever experienced. He didn't want it getting out that there was active ground combat taking place in the North, because I believe it countered the narrative that he was maintaining that they had the North wrapped up and under control. And when Major, then Major Aki submitted valor awards for, for um, Captain Minning and Staff Sergeant Herbst and several others, he pushed them back and told them, I won't, I won't look at any of these, these metal inundations. And he was so toxic that, you know, Major Aki, you know, very wisely didn't push the issue because he probably would have been relieved of command. And we had to sit on this. And eventually he rotated out and a new Arctic North commander came. And the first order of business was to submit the Valor Medal recommendations for the men who had really shined that day. And he was willing to receive them, but he was suspicious and that he was like, why, why have you been sitting on these for four months? And we had to explain to him the previous Arctic uh, commander wouldn't even look at them. Which, you know, it's a very awkward and strange position to be in. The whole thing was uncomfortable. And our previous RSIC commander was a big army guy. And I think there were a lot of factors involved. You know, we were kind of a polygraph hodgepodge group of, you know, onesies and twosies from, from different services and, and army reserves and national guard. And I'm sure there wasn't a lot of respect from him, you know, to us and what we'd endured. Sure. And it's, they, the men eventually did receive downgraded medals. Uh, army commendations with V devices, which I, I don't want to disparage that medal. No, but the actions that took place that day um, were certainly at the Bronze Star Medal with Valor device level, if not higher. And I think you know the medals I submitted, I I thought it was very conservative in putting in Bronze Star Medal with Valor devices for these men, and every single thing got downgraded. Um, and it it's been a, a burr under my saddle for 14 years. And I've been working diligently for, well, off and on. Let me say that. I'll go at it for a few years then I'll get, you know, unmotivated because you just keep hitting brick wall after brick wall. And then I'll pick up the mantle again and I'll try and move forward with it. We're gaining a little bit of ground right now. And that's, again, it's one of the reasons I wanted to come on and and talk to you about that. Because I I believe strongly that there are a lot of of guard and reserve uh, soldiers who probably earned medals at a higher level than they receive for a variety of reasons. And I, I do think it's something we should be talking about and, and be discussing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always a very um, dangerous slope when you talk about metal. It is. Um, it is. And, and I, it really is. I've said this before, you know, I mean, I got a, I got a bronze star in my first deployment and, and I ju- truly and genuinely feel that I earned the hell out of it. And I earned every single thread on that metal. Um, and and I'll take my, take that with my grave to me. The second deployment I was on, it was mandated by the general, by the, by the division commander that all O fours would get bronze stars. And 
when they were telling me they were putting me in for one, I literally told the command, don't, I don't deserve it. I didn't do anything worthy of it. The job didn't merit it. And they told me we have to put it in this way. I'm like, well, don't just don't put one in period. You know, like it's just ridiculous. And so, and I remember reading, I think it was in stars and stripes, you know, the paper that they would give you overseas. Sure. There was a column in there about, the number of bronze stars that were given out from like the beginning of the Iraq war to 2007 and then from 2008 on, and the number had like quadrupled. And I've always maintained, and I've always held to the maxim that if everybody has one, it's not special. Like you remember the house on Halloween that gives you the chocolate bar, the size of your head because the little Snickers that everybody gets aren't special because everybody has one. Yeah. So it, it it stands to reason that I believe we should be super tough on awards um, and not hand them out like candy because they need to hold some semblance of value. Um, I agree, and, especially the service medals, especially right. the ones you get, like you said, at the end of your tour. If everybody E8 and above gets a Bronze Star medal for service, it doesn't mean it anything. does. It doesn't mean anything. And that. And I'm not even really addressing the service medal issue. Right. What we are but addressing the valor, though is the impact. Yes. Yes. The, the valor medals are are very personal, and the write ups on these are really quite phenomenal. I mean, it, this is not made up stuff. And this this battle raged for six hours, and there was a tremendous amount of valor displayed by many people, and no one was asking for you know distinguished service crosses or medals of honor. But, you know, for instance, Major Aki at the time was put in for an Archon B. He was the OIC. He was coordinating all these efforts throughout this tremendous battle. His was downgraded to an Archon. Now, an Archon is what you give an E4 who kicks ass on a great annual training, right? <laughs> this is the guy who gets the 300. He was the best soldier, you know, on the annual training. Yep. It's not something you give the OIC of a, of a multi-service, multi-nation, you know, six-hour slugfest to get an, an ARCOM, an Army Commendation Medal. And, and these were well-written. I mean, these are very well-written medals. And I, I keep forwarding them to people for, for review. And everyone's like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this definitely deserves it. But what I discover is it takes – it's not something that can be done at a GO level. It has to go to a congressman. A congressman has to get involved. Yes. And you know, that's where you tend to sputter out. You know, and I'm working with – I've been working with New York – National, because you can't, if I went to New Mexico, I did go to New Mexico congressman and they're like, these aren't my constituents. Yeah, I, like, okay, I'm not I going get, to help you. These people can't cast a vote for me. Thanks. Exactly. exactly. Let's not do and what's I'm right. Working, Let's not do what's right just because generally it's right. Let's just do what gets me elected. Yeah. And and now Captain Minning is dead. You know, he, he took his own life a couple oh of years ago. And, and he took his own life. He did uh, multiple deployments. Um, he was uh uh, he was the first man at ground zero in New York National Guard. He did a, a combat deployment to Iraq that uh, a friend of mine, Sean Michael Flynn, I'm going to show you this book. This isn't my book, but he wrote a book called The Fighting 69. And there's Joe Minning on the cover of this book. I mean, this Joe Minning was a hero. And most of, no, not most, a good chunk of the book that that uh, Colonel Flynn, now he's in 06 in the in New York uh, National Guard, wrote is centered around Joe Minning's exploits on this tour, right? Uh, from ground zero to Baghdad, right? So these are men that are uncommon, uncommonly brave men. And, and Colonel Flynn, uh, God bless him. Now that he's in 06, he's, he's really helping me to try and get Minning and Herbst's medals upgraded to 
to the level, I think, but, but it's too late. It's too late for Joe. You know, Joe came back after. Yeah, but it's not too late for Joe's family. Um, it's not. And that's why. I'm that's doing, why you do I'm it, right? Doing. Like um, for his kid. I don't know if he has kids or not, but. He doesn't, but he has a very big and, and loud and strong Long Island family. And they. Yeah, we, we travel I, in packs there, uh, Jamie. Yes. Oh, believe me. I understand how that works. And I, and I, I'd been working the issue for years and I talked to him the night before he took his life. And myself and, and Herps were on a three-way call. Cause he, he was really struggling with some demons. Um, and we talked him down that night. We felt really good. He was on medication. We were seeing a counselor. He didn't have any firearms. I mean, we, we walked through the whole process, but uh, he still took his life the next day. And it, it's a terrible tragedy. And we, I just learned another, you have to keep in mind that battle at Tezatawa, there were probably 15 Americans there that day. And I just learned that a second soldier, one of our uh, security forces, uh, New York National Guardsman took his life two months ago. So, you know, this, the, 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 the huge number of veterans committing suicide has really impacted the participants of this particular battle. You know, Minning went on to do another combat tour in Afghanistan after our 07, 08 tour. I mean, he, he deployed and deployed and deployed and he did exactly what the country wanted him to. And I look at uh, Staff Sergeant John Herbst, who's now Sergeant First Class Herbst. He has two Purple Hearts and two valor medals, right? And that's an uncommon thing, right? That's a very uncommon deal for a, a National Guard soldier to have been twice decorated for valor and to have two Purple Hearts. He was in the hospital for a year when he was injured the second time. And he had the opportunity to retire with full benefits from the New York Police Department and to medically retire from the Army. And he chose to stay in both. And he did too. So again, extraordinary men. And I, I really think that people need to pay attention to the actions of these guys and a host of other men who I think have been really kind of cheated out of, you know, what's due to them. Yeah. And I would say this much. Um, it doesn't, maybe I'm speaking at a turn here, but if somebody wants to tell me I am, I'm more than willing to listen. That sort of stuff doesn't happen on active duty as much for a couple of reasons. One, they have a better checks and balance systems. Two, they're more adept at writing those awards because they do it routinely. Three, they have full access to everybody who needs to sign everything. They can reach out and touch them all on a exactly. routine basis. Uh, and and when something goes wrong, they have all the resources at their disposal to fix it that are dedicated to do such a thing. That is not the case in the reserve component. They don't have as much experience writing these awards. They don't have the people who know what to do. They, 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 the people who need to fix the problem aren't readily available because it's not their sole job. They're doing three or four other things. Um, and as you said, they have to reach into different areas that they're not used to reaching into to get something done. So it's a much more arduous journey for guardsmen and reservists when an error like this is made or an oversight like this is made. I shouldn't know. Uh, Full disclosure, I can't say it's an error. I call it an oversight just for politically correct purposes. But when an oversight is made, it's much harder to correct because of what we have to go through. And you can go to the state G1, but guess what? The state G1 is about 1,800 other responsibilities that are more important to their rating from the CG and the tag than to worry about poor old Joe Minning's award, you know? And, yeah. and that's not right, um, but it is what it is. You need to find people like yourself who are dedicated to the cause to making sure that these oversights are corrected in order to have the reserve component get the just due that they deserve. And I do agree, and I have been part of it, and I have seen it where there have been active duty leaders who said, I'm not giving anything like that to guardsmen and reservists. 
I, I'm trying to avoid that statement. No, I'm telling you it's I, the case. I believe it is. There's truth. I'm to genuinely it. telling it's the case. I, I I will die on my last hill saying that because that is 100 percent the case. I've run into leaders like that who have said that out loud. I'm not giving that to a guardsman. Yeah, and that's and that's something that is so incredibly unfair. And I I, I always see, and I, I want to be careful how I, I cover this. I see a lot of uh, special operations units, and my son is a proud member of the 75th Ranger Regiment, so I have a deep connection to that community, right? They, they're they very caring about their soldiers and taking care of them. You recently saw 50 soldiers from the Mogadishu battle all get their medals upgraded to Silver Stars. 50, and that's a lot, and I think they probably all deserved it without a shadow of a doubt. But that took organizations like the 75th Ranger Regiment and Special Operations Command and JSOC to come together to say, we care about our soldiers. Those are our men, and we're going to move forward and do what we think is right for them. And I think particularly when you have a hodgepodge of, you know, National Guard and Navy and Air Force and reserve components tossed together, there's not a lot of ownership, right? I wore the Big Red One patch. I never saw anybody from the Big Red One from the minute I left Fort Riley. Um, Again, I never saw anybody from their chain of command because we were doing a combat advisor mission that didn't have any direct supervision from what was technically my parent unit. So I think there's a lot of things that kind of come together to create this. And once a medal has been approved and awarded, that's the problem. Because then you have to go back and show, you know, all this extra stuff, which I have done. I've gone back and collected statements from the uh, some of the soft elements that were there, particularly the Norwegians. But it's really hard to get traction. It's really hard to get traction. I feel like we're moving in the right direction now, particularly with Colonel Flynn, mm-hmm. as he's now risen up through the ranks to the New York National Guard. He's a very good man and a very good officer. I think we're going to, at some point, we're going to get these two guys recognized. Joe posthumously and mm-hmm. hopefully John in person. Well, good luck. Keep at it for, for a lot of different reasons, but mostly for, for Joe's friends and family and loved ones. and Yeah. Uh, for yeah. John Herbst uh, and his family, you know, but uh, there are a lot of different reasons. So I applaud your efforts. And, and uh, if there's anything I can ever do to support you along the way, please don't hesitate. To You're doing it. Ask. You're doing it right now. So, well, there, there's more. Uh, I'm still putting on a uniform all the time. So uh, maybe yeah. I'll throw my eagle around and see what it, what it gets. Probably not a good idea. For me to say, maybe probably not a good idea for me to say that out loud. So uh, but anyway, we're not going to edit that out. I'll, I'll again, uh, I own what I say. There you go. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you said uh, that when you got back, you had your, your own set of struggles to deal with. I did. You know, um, I, I did. I came back. When you come back, you know, I I, I was decorated personally. So I, you come back, you feel great about yourself. There's a, a period of um, a honeymoon period mm-hmm. where, you know, you're the guy coming back from the war who's done really well. And and, and you, you kind of soak that up and then that fades away. And uh, I... I have, I have strong theories on, I don't believe I had PTSD. I had uh, adjustment disorders. I strongly had, I had extreme difficulty readjusting to this life. I was still in Afghanistan for probably a year and a half after I got back. I was obsessed. I kept in touch with everybody who was still there. All I thought about day and night was what was happening in my area of operations. And it was a struggle. It really was. I stopped eating lost like 35 pounds. Wow. I had one of my friends come up to me. He says, Hey man, you look really good. But if you lose any more weight, he said, you're going to look sick. He said, people are starting to ask me if you're sick. And it, I didn't mean to do it. I just stopped eating. Then I stopped sleeping and I needed help. I mean, I really needed help and, and I got it. I actually got it. I, I ended up, I had a little, uh, a little personal meltdown 
reached out to a local Air Force base that was close to me, and God bless them, they sent a van, and they picked me up. And I think they probably saved my life, to be honest with you. So it took a while. It took about another year, and uh, I got through it, and, uh, and everything Let me was ask good. you, how were you able to recognize so quickly that things weren't right? Other than the eating, was there anything else that you were able to recognize? Uh, extreme emotional. I was extremely emotional. And I've heard this from so many combat veterans. You watch a Hallmark commercial, commercial, you have tears streaming down your cheek. And you're like, why am I crying over a little bunny rabbit on a Hallmark commercial? You know, little things like that. I started to get uh, anxiety attacks, like Tony Soprano level anxiety attacks, where yeah. um, it was, just, I never had one. I thought I was having a heart attack. The first one I had, I thought I was actually having a heart attack because my heart started to race. I started to sweat. I felt like I had to go to the bathroom. Uh, I felt like I had to throw up all at once. Uh, and it was overwhelming. And, you know, when I went and finally got help and I talked to somebody, they're like, that's a panic attack. And I'm like, I've never had anxiety or panic attacks in my life. And it's very, very common for people coming back from combat deployments. And I don't have nightmares, you know, at night, things of that nature, which I always consider more like PTS, but I had strong anxiety and I had uh, a real difficult time readjusting to, to basically the, the boring life that we live, which of course now I, I treasure, but after being in combat and having all those thrills, it was really hard to, to dial it back down. You know, I, crazy story. I was feeling really poorly I just gotten a job as an instructor. They transferred me to the University of New Mexico to be an ROTC instructor. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was on my way to work. Actually, I take that back. I was on my way to see the therapist and I'm sitting at an intersection and across the road from me, there's a car on fire. Right. And I'm looking at this car on fire and I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? When I cross the intersection, there's a dude in the car and he's like slumped over the wheel and the hood of the car is on fire. And he's got his brake, he's got his uh, accelerator pressed down, but the car in front of him had put it in park and jumped out. And so he's piled against the car in front of him. So the car's tires are spinning at like 120 miles per hour and it set the car on fire, all that friction. There's rubber flying everywhere. And long story short, I ended up getting his window down and I reached in to turn off his car. He woke up, he started biting me, thought I was trying to steal his car. I'm in uniform, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm like giving him a little bit of elbow telling him, you know, Hey, stop biting me. Stop biting me. We got him out of the car. Um, it was like, it was more like a campfire. I don't want to make it sound like a Hollywood fire. It's kind of like a campfire on his hood, but we got him out. The ambulance came. I went on to my therapist to, to have that visit. And I didn't realize I was covered in molten rubber. Like the tire, the rubber from the, mol uh, from the tire, the melted tire had covered my whole body, my left side. And I got to the, to that visit and I felt amazing. I felt better than I'd felt in like two years. I was so excited. I was so alive. And that's when I realized that I missed the adrenaline, right? The adrenaline, even though that wasn't really a dangerous situation, there was a tiny element of danger to it and it woke me back up, right? And that's why I think young soldiers come back and they die in those car accidents driving 175 miles an hour in their sports cars or their motorcycles because they're trying to recapture that intensity of combat, that, that feeling of danger. And eventually it fades. What I discovered for me personally was it took a few years, but I was able to readjust to normal life. And, and now I love my life. But it took several years to kind of come off of that high of combat and that excitement. And I think when your body is super elevated in, in feelings of danger for long periods of time, I think it does rewire your brain a little bit. 
And I think that takes time for people to kind of process and work through. Well, I think it's an incredibly valuable lesson um, that you're teaching people. Um, and, and, you know, through my own personal, uh, you know, situation, it's, it's the same and it's similar to why I asked the questions that I asked because I'm still trying to figure out, navigate through this whole thing and understand um, better the ways to, to overcome this stuff. Right. Um, and you know, it's, a, I always wonder if, you know, PTS is sort of more along the lines of alcoholism or drug addiction, where it's something that you, you live with and fight every single day, or if it's ever a destination where you just move on to the next phase of your life. And I can't figure out yeah. which one it is. It's different for different people. For me, I move through it and I'm a hundred percent fine today. I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a little careful about situations I put myself into. I found like where my anxiety would trigger was if I was in a position I can't really get out of, you know, and I think that comes from being in that Humvee under fire for all those times, you kind of feel trapped in the Humvee. So if I get into a scenario, like if I'm in a movie theater and I'm in the middle chair and there's people filling the both seats all the way to both sides, I start to feel trapped, even though I could get up and just pull my way through it starts to you know create a small amount of anxiety in me. So I just learned to adjust. My wife and I, we just adjust to uh, scenarios that I'm comfortable with and, and I feel good, but some people never recover. You know, it strikes some people harder and they never recover. And I think that's why we have this, you know, tidal wave of, of veteran suicides that are still happening. I just learned about the death of PFC Henry, who'd been on that, that mm-hmm. battle with us at Tesnala. Uh, I did not know. I did not know he'd passed away. And a lot of the guys didn't know that, you know, Captain Minning had passed away. But it just takes us one by one if you're not careful. And I think that's why it's important that we all stay in touch and stay in, you know, contact as much as possible. So, yeah, no, uh, perfect, perfectly said. Um, You you mentioned being a teacher, uh, ROTC being an instructor. I'm just kind of curious what's harder, getting through to two hard headed New Yorkers from the National Guard or getting through to ROTC cadets? Because I would assume Uh, that there is a challenge with both of them. No, I'll tell you what, uh, ROTC Considering I'm a New Yorker are, and was an ROTC cadet, I, I, I can, <laughs> you know, I can do both. Um, the New Yorkers were far more uh, verbose and uh, and louder. The, the the young students were just so eager. They're just so eager to talk to you, to, to, to get all your experience, to, to get the lessons that you have to teach them. I remember doing paperwork my first year there, and I realized that uh, literally – some of them were born of the year I enlisted. And that was like a holy mackerel, you're getting old moment. Like when their date of birth was my date of enlistment. But I had a wonderful time there. Uh, got to work with uh, great cadre. And I got to work with uh, great students. I did that for a couple of years. Then I transitioned and took an infantry battalion from New Mexico. At this point, we transitioned to infantry. We have the 1-200 infantry battalion here in New Mexico National Guard. And I took them on the uh, Sinai mission, the MFO mission to Egypt, which, you know, not a combat deployment, but still a very interesting time. And then I wrapped it up. Did you know it was time on your own or you just kind of, they told you, Hey, no, I I actually wanted to retire at 20, to be honest with you. And the adjutant general wanted to promote me to E9 and he wanted me to take this infantry battalion to Egypt. And I, I owe him so much. I can't begin to tell you how much I owe general Montoya. So I did it for him and uh, don't regret it at all. It was a great time, but as soon as I got back, I knew it was time to retire. So I retired in 2013, and I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, and I, my, my family and I, we ended up buying a small family farm. And so now we run a, a small family farm here in New Mexico and uh, enjoy every day. 
Well, I mean, listen, uh, you've sort of reached nirvana from that standpoint, right? You know, I mean, this is. I have. Veterans make great farmers, by the way. Do they? Uh, No, there's a big push. There's a big push to get Uh, veterans into farming because farmers are aging out. I I would argue that guys from New York never make good farmers. It doesn't matter what they do. But then again, I'm from from the city area of New York, not from the uh, upstate. I think upstate New Yorkers could could farm something, but I don't really ever associate with those people. They're not really. Look, you know this as well as I. Well, you don't know this, but I'll explain it to you. You know, you have like Manhattan and the five boroughs. You have Long Island. You got Westchester, Westchester County, Rockland County, and, you know, the Yonkers area. And after that, it's just Albany and Buffalo. That's it. Like the right. rest of that is not really New York. Like there's all New York there, but that's not really New York. Even where Fort Drum is, that's not really New York. It's it's it, within the geographical bounds of New York, but nobody considers it New York. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, I see a lot of my friends who retire. Um, they have a hard time starting a second career working for somebody else because, you know, they did 20 or 25 years. And that's the beauty of working for yourself. If you have a farm, you're your own boss, right? So you get to control your own hours and your own output. But we're relatively disciplined people. So, you know, we do the work. We do the work that needs to be done. So the VA uh, is pushing that real heavily recently, you know, veterans to farmers. And I do think it's a good fit. I've had several friends of mine kind of follow me into this into this world of farming. So it's peaceful. You know, it's peaceful. It's beautiful. And you kind of control your own destiny. So can't well, complain about it much. I wish you nothing but the best of crops going forward. May your fields <laughs> not lie fallow uh, when, they, when they are supposed to be yielding fruit and, and other such Props for you. I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm making it up as it goes along. I hope it makes sense. <laughs> Very good. I appreciate it. Well, Jason, look, I mean, uh, I think you've shared a lot and it's been amazing talking to you. It's been a, a great journey and, and thank you for letting me sit alongside and hear it all. And again, continued success and continued luck and continued, you know, pushing towards getting those awards upgraded. Uh, so the people thank that you. deserve them get right what they rightly deserve. I, I think that's so important. And it's super important that we make sure um, when it when it comes to impact awards like that, that those are correct and that they're honored, and that people's objectivity doesn't get in the way, um, yeah, because yeah. that's that's the worst reason for us to to not award somebody something. Yeah, we got to take care of all of our soldiers, regardless Equally. of yes. what branch they come or what component they come from. And there's a lot of great reserve component soldiers out there. Amazing, many of them come from the big army, right? Yeah. Many of them come from the big army and then share their skills and experiences with the reserve component. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Absolutely is. Well, again, good luck with farming. Uh, enjoy your peace and happiness with the rest of your life. And I've certainly enjoyed you being part of the Hazard Ground. Jason Riley, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.